You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives. Research for the Real World, conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to help shape everyday lives. Hi, I'm Jo Nicholl and I'm a lecturer in science education here at IOE UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. In this season of Research for the Real World, we're highlighting IOE research that provides insights on finding ways for technology to play a meaningful role within education. We know that parents, teachers and students have concerns about the way in which society reacts with technology, but how can we improve our relationship with it? Maximise the use of high quality content. Is there a way that we can take advantage of personalised learning? And there's also all that chat about AI. On this episode, I am delighted to be talking to Professor Manolis Mavrikis. Malolis is a professor in artificial intelligence and analytics in education here at the IOE and an editor of the British Journal of Educational Technology. Manolis, I look forward to hearing more about your work and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Brilliant. Now, before I ask you a bit more about your own work, I want to know a bit more about your own education and work background. So how did you become involved in working in education research? Thanks. My journey into this whole field uh, somehow started more personally. I discovered I had sort of a, a knack for explaining things to people, especially my sister <laughs> at that time. And uh, everyone was encouraging me to become a teacher. Uh, I was studying mathematics at the, the university in Athens, and there was a big demand for for teachers, as there is also now here in this country. I, I don't think it was so much that I was particularly good at explaining things, to be, <laughs> to be fair. But it's more that I, I sort of had the ability to understand and model what people knew and what they didn't know, and that I could take this into account. And so I started uh, being more interested also in whether we can uh, develop technologies that can help in the same way to understand difficult concepts. I did a master's in uh, education technology and artificial intelligence in uh, Edinburgh, and then a PhD also there with uh, joint supervision in uh, interdisciplinary modules across the maths or engineering and the school of education there and somehow that journey brought me to ioe <laughs> continue this work brilliant you were saying that you you know it starts off with this you know ability to be able to teach family members such as your sister did you go and teach as well were you a maths teacher yeah, yeah. in greece before doing the masters yeah, yeah. brilliant and it's always nice, I think, when, when you're thinking about education research, I'm sure you can draw on sort of practices 
that, that sort of you reflect back on on those times in the classroom as well. On one, I need to say this carefully, but on one hand, sort of that experience made me realize that I there are some limitations I have, I guess, in, in that in that context of classroom teaching. And, and since then, I see teachers as heroes, <laughs> <laughs> being being able to deal with multiple things at any given time, including the noise around them. The all of the socio-emotional aspects apart from the content and the learning that goes on. And so it was good to help me appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I completely understand. I'm, I'm, I'm from a science teaching background and I have nothing but respect for those teachers that are juggling all of those balls at the same time whilst also trying to teach. So, yeah. But like you say, your journey from Edinburgh University brought you after that to, to UCL. I know that you work at UCL Knowledge Lab where you've developed digital environments that provide direct, individualised and adaptive feedback. And I wondered if you could share a little bit about how these systems work and their potential in supporting learning. Yeah, thanks. So at the Knowledge Lab, we do research more broadly in education, technology, media and other areas tangential to that. We have few people there. I'm particularly interested in these digital environments that, that with an underlying principle that can help students in subject specific, as we call them, areas. The, we've developed different systems with particularly in mathematics, algebra, fractions and so on, but I've done some work with other colleagues as well on language learning. In general, these kind of systems use some algorithms and technology that is able to track or model uh, learners' progress in these systems. The, mostly the interaction with the environment, such as what kind of tasks they do, the choices they made within the environment. These kind of environments could be simple games or simple questions or more complicated kind of open-ended environments where I'm focusing at. There is other work also in the field that focuses in science that you mentioned. Some people call them simulations. We tend to refer to this whole area as exploratory learning environments. And so in these systems, depending on the design, they provide feedback that is tailored to the, to the student as they interact. And so if the, I'm, I'm, it's more broadly for learners, I tend to focus on students because, or pupils, because uh, I'm working usually with schools, especially the last few years. But if a learner is struggling with a particular concept, the system can kind of offer different feedback or maybe take a particular pathway to give an exercise or a different task to help them explain that concept. And again, depending on the focus, some systems are more with this idea of mastery, of helping develop or master a particular topic as you interact, allowing variability even in the classroom, for example. Does this make sense <laughs> for now? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's fascinating, actually, thinking about it, because, you know, what you're saying there is that, you know, when the students are engaging with the simulation or the game or the system, there then that's responding to them and working out what they can and can't do and then feeding back and giving them a personalized activity I guess in which maybe it's recognizing things or ideas that maybe they need to extend I mean could you give us an example that would be that would be great yeah I'd have to show you probably I mean the podcast this is not uh, 
very easy. First, just a comment about personalized. I tend to refer to as individualized because I guess personalized would be more taking into account other aspects as well that maybe a computer is not necessarily the best to do. But an example is a recent, relatively recent project. We developed a tool that helps students visualize fractions with uh, different representations. And in that tool, everyone might start from the same uh, from the same activity but depending on how they interact they might get a different one so we know from research in this area that it's important to have both procedural and conceptual understanding especially on on fractions and so the system might start with a more open-ended activity that could be perceived as an informer, as, as a play kind of activity for the learners where they just play with different representations and explore what happens in, in this visual environment, which I wish I could show you. But as they proceed, and if, the, if based on some work that we've done before, we know that some of the interaction manifests a kind of procedural error, they might get an activity that helps them consolidate this knowledge. And we start sort of in, in some expectation in the, what we would expect from an average student. And as they display that it might be too easy for them, the activity might get more complicated, more difficult just to challenge them. Or if it gets very difficult and they start asking for a lot of questions or feedback from the system, then it might get easier. And so we evaluated this in, in classrooms and in a recent paper we found that students who engage in a mix of this both exploratory and this structured tasks that are more procedural more about how you use you solve the problem rather than only the concepts behind the, the fractions they this mix of activities helped gain more conceptual knowledge and uh, an equal amount of procedural knowledge compared to the students who engaged only with the structured tasks and so this pointed to some kind of combination effect as we <laughs> termed it but we need to complement this sort of activity so this might have an implication for us in terms of what we are doing in the system and in educational technology broadly but i think this has interesting implications for classroom practice as well because you can do these sort of things also without technology yeah and just for for those listeners that might be listening that don't know the difference between procedural and conceptual understanding how would you how would you define the difference between those so for maybe i'll start from the tasks from the, from the especially in educational technology there are there are a lot of applications and mobile apps, uh, platforms, and so on, that focus a lot on tasks that usually have a very specific goal or an answer that is expected. They might guide the learner step by step through a process to, to reach that goal, but there might be a unique answer somehow. For instance, I don't know, in uh, mathematics in particular, you might, let's go back to fractions, one might ask you, to add two fractions and then the only expectation might be to answer correctly maybe using a particular method and the emphasis both in education technology but sometimes in classrooms as well is on the procedures that lead to this solution of, of the problem the sort of how to and there tends to be a lot of emphasis on the instructions on these procedures of 
how to solve a problem, but the underlying ideas and concepts, and that's why it's referred to as conceptual understanding, the underlying ideas might not be easy to, to understand and requires getting a little bit more deeper into the why rather than the how. Yeah, so ultimately it's more it, it's more about internalising that understanding, I guess, and really appreciating it for the concepts rather than just the answer. <laughs> Fascinating. I mean, and in terms of, you know, what you've seen from that work, how is it supporting the learning process for students? In our work in particular, it provides an alternative, an alternative mechanism, an alternative tool for engaging with this concepts in mathematics in particular but i think also this this applies elsewhere particularly in science i guess some of the concepts are abstract and are hard to even visualize or to understand why why are we even discussing about this in some previous work for example we developed a tool to help students express equations that represent some sort of variable that might be changing but if you see it statically on the paper this is kind of meaningless for the student but the minute it becomes uh, visual the abstract can become more more real and, and concrete for a student to understand and so in our case this is a particular reason to actually use technology that otherwise might be difficult to even visualize or it might take time on paper and so on but more generally, uh, with students becoming familiar with technology, and so on, they have come also to expect sometimes to, especially in mathematics, to interact with, uh, with technology to be able to solve or learn about different concepts and topics. And so I think that's the added value there. Yeah. So, so you mean that they, they expect to or they want to use technology to help shape and develop their understanding? They want to. I'm obviously overgeneralizing now and I'm biased. <laughs> but there is a motivational element to technology. There is also innovation factor, novelty factor, when, uh, especially when we as researchers go in the space and have built something novel and different than what they might be used at. There is that and it's hard to partial out also from the research we're doing, I guess. But beyond that, and kind of anecdotally and from knowing the field, as a whole. There is on one hand this expectation from the students, but also, especially after COVID, both teachers and students and even parents have come to appreciate some of the potential and risks and complications around this area. But there is this uh, uh, kind of push and pull kind of situation that happens in, in, in schools around technology. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned there that, that students it helps with engagement, it potentially helps with motivation as well. Uh, and that could come down to the novel factor. But you also recognise there that there's there's potential or unique challenges of implementing such technologies into schools. And and I wonder from your research and experience what what you have found to be the most common issues or obstacles that schools and teachers face when introducing technology. Mm, yeah, <laughs> where to start? Um, yeah. Can all appear very negative. But I think there are many areas that I know from, not so much from research, because we, we tend to gloss over these issues when we are doing research, as I said, because we 
go in a setting and I don't know, sometimes we even bring the technology and so on. I think practically in schools there are many uh, issues, and especially in state schools, infrastructure is, is one, and access to technology. But, okay, I think that can be a whole podcast <laughs> on its own, I guess. Another more common issue might be around teacher professional development, partly because even the most sophisticated tools may not be used to their full potential. And somehow there's a kind of, there's an interplay between what the teacher may be willing or have time to do, given the constraints. Again, assuming putting infrastructure on the side and assuming in the best case scenario that everything is integrated and easy to use and so on. It does take sort of kind of developmental approach to to see the potential, especially from teachers who may not have had similar experiences when they were students themselves or when they were being when they were doing ITE or whatever at the university. And so there is this challenge that leads also to the might be a little bit different type of challenge has to do with the with shifting the pedagogy that especially some technologies requires shifting the pedagogy that is in the classroom because it's not only about, for example, asking students to do something at, as homework in the digital environment that might or might not require changing the pedagogy, but innovating and creative new and effective ways of uh, teaching and learning requires not only just making something that is digital and which we see very often, it's like just using a virtual learning environment just to upload PDFs, for example, instead of printing them, right? which even we at the university are often doing, but truly going beyond just digitizing and uh, making sure that the technology is integrated into the teaching and learning is one of the biggest challenges, I think, in this space. And I recognise that and, and appreciate that because you mentioned earlier about COVID and, and its impact on maybe how it's accelerated this area of interest because we may all be a little bit more digitally literate but there's definitely even within me some resistance there to change and it's in with all of us isn't it and it's just because we're used to using the same practices day in and day out but integrating that into teachers and the way they teach and how they teach is a challenge but I mean what steps do you think can be taken to overcome some of those challenges including how to you know improve resistance to, towards it? So it's I think I'd start with professional development or other similar approaches a lot of people talk about mentoring uh, peer support and so on I think it goes back to what I mentioned about the initial teacher education or other training of teachers and it's mostly it's not only but it has to do with lack of familiarity or habit and again even in the best schools with technology integrated i take this as an assumption for now there are still some technological barriers i guess everywhere in terms of time it takes even simple things we've done some work the field tends to refer to it as orchestration challenges, the challenge of managing a classroom and of making sure that all the activities are aligned and so on. Technology brings that extra layer of complexity. So usually the advocates say that the technology saves time or saves paper or, or whatever, but this sort of these orchestration challenges are quite uh, significant at times. 
There's also something around beliefs that people have and attitudes to technology in general and may have to do also with uh, fear of uh, job displacement or other issues around expectations of technology. If, if when I was trained, maybe in the first instance I encounter some barriers, then I might be less willing to try something in the classroom because I know that I don't know, I would not sort out the passwords easily. So, so you asked me how to overcome this kind of uh, issues or resistance. I don't think there's a, a magic bullet, but again, addressing infrastructural issues first and then really working with a school with a, or at least within departments to have implementation part plans that can help teachers have both technical support and resources, but also mentorship to sort out the everyday issues. The word that you used there earlier on, you know, advocates for technology. So sort of, you know, realising or showcasing the potential of what it can do for you as well. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think we all have our beliefs and if you don't see something in practice and if, if people do not share the success stories, then at least within a school environment or between schools, then it becomes an issue. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned there, which I've heard before as well, about, you know, that fear around loss of jobs. And that, for certain industries, is obviously that's going to have an impact. Have you ever been asked the question, can technology replace a teacher? Because yeah. <laughs> I feel I've been asked that question. <laughs> uh, we've been asked many times, and especially with the type of work I mentioned before with the with the feedback that the system gives and so on. There is sometimes this assumption that we are trying to replace the teacher. I, I don't think that technology can replace the teacher. Uh, let's start with that for sure. And we, especially given what I told you about feedback and so on, we're not aiming to to replace the feedback that, that the teacher gives, but maybe provide additional feedback that might be difficult in a classroom of 30 pupils, for example, there's this whole marketing kind of uh, <laughs> that is used in the education technology sector that technology can replace the more mundane tasks and free up time for the teachers to do more creative and humane tasks. Sometimes it's a little bit of a marketing ploy, but I, I do believe in that, like deep down that, again, going back to these issues around, for example, procedural and, and, and some of the detailed feedback that is required when you're making a mistake, it has its place. It's not the only support that is required, but it can take away some of the of this detailed work that a teacher otherwise needs, needs to do. And I'm not advocating at any point that it could replace. On the contrary, it could be used to elaborate on the feedback, discuss the errors that you're making the, in the system and provide this more socio-emotional support that is required in, the, in these cases. Yeah. So, yeah, recognising that social and emotional aspects to teaching uh, and how it can't be replaced is, is a nice way of framing it, actually, isn't it? Because thinking about the value that can be added from these programmes or systems to feed into giving students feedback about their work, but then having that alongside a teacher who is 
you know, aware of those social and emotional aspects. Someone described it to me the other day. I was talking to them about AI and it was an educator. She, she was a music, music educator, but we were talking about it in, in terms of her subject. And she said she sees AI as a brain on a stick, which I thought was quite nice. You know, so she sort of thought, okay, yes, maybe it's in reference to that, those conceptual and procedural ways in which it can you know think about or it can't think itself or maybe it can I don't know um but the procedures around that might be possible but then when we're kind of putting that into an environment where there are other beings and there's social and emotional nuances that the teacher is also aware of then adds to that doesn't it I don't know if that if that's a good analogy or not actually (laughs) it's an interesting analogy It, 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 it is good I avoided uh, using the term uh, artificial intelligence so far in our conversation on purpose. I have a bet with myself to try to to avoid within at least 10 minutes to mention, partly because there's so much complexity, misconceptions and terminological uh, confusion around this that everyone conflates things under AI these days. So the, the work I described before around feedback, it does come from a, from a space of what is traditionally re- referred to as artificial intelligence. It doesn't use the, the maybe machine learning or other approaches that are emerging these days, but maybe something that most people refer to as a good old-fashioned AI, where there's a lot of human input into the design of the of the activities, of the feedback, of the pathways that I mentioned that the, that the student takes into the in the system, like the fractions example that I was giving you earlier. But yeah, I think we can't avoid <laughs> in, in a discussion these days to get into the AI space and large language models and so on. And it's interesting that I, I mentioned AI without even realizing it, you know, and probably two years ago, I wouldn't have even used that term. So it, it just shows how it's, it, it has filtered down to people that I wouldn't consider myself, you know, an AI expert at all, but, you know, even te- technology-wise. But I know that European Parliament, they've come up with a definition, is that right, of the AI system now, finally, after two long years. I don't know if it's worth mentioning on here, but I'll mention it anyway. It says it's software that, for a given set of human-defined objectives, generate outputs such as content, predictions, recommendations or decisions influencing the environments they interact with. So that was two days ago um, that they came up with that. But but yeah, and, for, and actually my next question, which I was um, going to ask, is, is centred around AI, because I know um, you have a long history in the field of artificial intelligence and education, and you've, you've kind of witnessed its evolution during that time. And I wonder how you've seen the role of AI in education change over those years, in particular with rise to, and you've mentioned it yourself, that, you know, machine learning and big data. Yeah, thanks. So everyone comes up with a definition these days around what they mean. AI. That, that's good because especially in reports and so on, it's important to acknowledge what we're talking about. And so that definition you mentioned is as good as any other, as long as it's used consistently. The field has indeed uh, had many changes over the years. I mentioned almost in passing that the focus, especially when I started, was more around what some people refer to as rule-based systems or the more 
these kind of cognitive models that are, require a lot of uh, handcrafting by teams of experts in, in the different areas. And that's the approach I've used mostly. These kind of models can be improved by having data as well. And that's how one strand of work evolved in kind of combining what experts can build with data that are developed after a system is made. You mentioned the advent of uh, machine learning and data uh, and so on. This shifted radically the last few years, partly because of uh, computational power in uh, computing, and cloud computing and other approaches that allows uh, systems, this kind of machine learning approaches to find patterns in very large data. But sometimes with this kind of patterns, the they why behind these patterns, maybe it has to do with this conceptual procedural <laughs> discussion we were having earlier, the, the why is not always made uh, clear. And uh, the last few years, there has been, this has come to the public attention somehow, partly because of uh, large language models like ChatGPT, because they became publicly available, although the technology has been around for a few years. And that changed even somehow the discussion around uh, AI that became a more colloquial term and even somewhat the agenda around educational technology. Yeah, I mean, oh, so many questions. You know, and I was thinking, I mean, in terms of large language models like ChatGPT, you mentioned that, um, and their potential. I, I didn't actually know it had been around for, for that long before it, you know, it hit, like you say, this such high level of interest in it. But in terms of what considerations that educators and developments should keep in mind to make sure that these tools are used effectively, but also used ethically. I mean, what, what would you say about those considerations for that? Yeah, they have been around from 2017-18 as, as technology. It's just it wasn't available publicly to everyone to just open uh, a browser and, and uh, just ask a question. And actually that, that brings all these uh, issues and considerations that uh, we should all have, I guess. I'll stick to education in particular and teaching and learning that uh, we've been talking about. I think, among other things, like everything else, I see tools like this as a tool, like any other tool that we've had in education, including the ones I mentioned earlier, or even take simpler tools like a calculator, or I don't know, some people even say that paper was a tool and so they should be employed in a way that supports teaching and learning we talked about replacement before and so not as a replacement for the human elements of the of, of this equation there, there, are, there are many issues that sometimes i don't even know where to start but there are issues first of all with data privacy especially when we're talking about schools but even ignoring that and, and treating treating this kind of technology as a tool that maybe could address uh, privacy issues. There are biases and fairness issues. You asked me about, on one hand, educators, but also developers using these tools. In, uh, so at the Masters of Education Technology at the, at the Knowledge Lab, we have a module with uh, 
a colleague that we focus specifically on AI in education. One of the strands of it is addressed to people who want to use AI broadly, different categories of AI, including large language models, to develop applications for education, for teaching and learning. And I think one of the biggest challenges in that for developers, with developers in mind, is around transparency and explainability, as they're called in the field. It's the idea that it is important to find ways to make clear how a system, an AI, if you will, has arrived to a conclusion based on its input somehow. And so there are a lot of people who are working towards this sort of area of being transparent and then being able to explain the the decisions, especially when they are decisions that have an implication for example, high stakes exams or something, if we ever reach that point. No, I think, I think the, you know, the idea is refreshing to hear, you know, from an expert such as yourself that, you know, these, these tools, and that's what we should call them, isn't it, are, you know, are ways in which we can further support the teaching and learning that we do with students, ideas or, or thinking, but it, it doesn't maybe do the thinking for you, hopefully. Yeah, and I think so for for educators and, and for students, for learners, I think depends on your role and the age and the the subject. There's so many. I know a lot of people are finding uses, especially in language learning, and it's not my area, but also I know there are tools and plugins and approaches that you can improve the outputs of these systems for mathematics where they actually like a lot and so compared to a calculator actually that's a bad comparison but in terms of the creativity or even sometimes uh, searching and summarizing that's other ways that can be used there are there is a lot of potential don't get me wrong i didn't mean to downgrade it to a calculator but from a student point of view i think it's becoming much more important to be able to self-regulate and understand when to use these tools what they're meant for what outputs do they provide how do i ask for feedback and support and rather than the solution or the essay you must have been involved in university discussions around this and so it's also the role of the school and the educators in general the teachers to help students understand that the same way that maybe 10 15 years ago we had issues around that had to be understood around privacy around safety in online learning and in online use in general so now the discussion is shifting for me into this area around uh, self-regulation i think yeah so so what do you think's next in terms of for ai i think what's where what's coming is more wide use as as we start seeing already i think uh, it's it's people say that you shouldn't do predictions but there's a kind of a I feel there's a kind of a a limit in what these tools can do. There's a lot of expectation and people are very optimistic. I'm also generally optimistic, but I think there are are inherent limitations, including several issues around computational power and so on. I won't bore the listeners with this now, but the availability of of these tools and the fact that even what we mentioned earlier around the agenda changing a little bit 
means that we can now have a conversation about these and learn also from the history of, of the field that had small incremental lessons learned from different applications. They were not language models like now, but there are people who worked in dialogue for years. There are people who worked on feedback, including myself, and there are valuable lessons that we can learn from that to apply into how we use AI more broadly in teaching and learning and to start putting um, some people call them guardrails around the safe use of these tools in this context. I think that that's really positive and this this that's really positive and there's some security from hearing that actually you know that you've been working in this field for a long time it's captivating the audience of society as a whole now but there's lessons that you can learn from you know what's happened in the past and the history of its evolution that can be applied to the future use of it so i'm glad that we have people like you <laughs> working on such important issues thank you very very much menolis it's been really interesting to learn about your career your research uh, and particularly the future of ai so thanks for coming onto the podcast thank you thanks for having me it was very interesting you can follow Manolis on Twitter at Mavrikis, that's at M-A-V-R-I-K-I-S, to learn more about his research. Some of what we've covered today is also available in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, we have an archive of 19 past seasons. Search IOE Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts to find episodes of Research for the Real World, as well as more podcasts from IOE. Oh, and a quick favour before you go. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it if you could give the IOE Podcast a rating. Five stars would be nice if you're enjoying the show. And that will help us reach more people who are interested in hearing about such important work. I'm Jo, and thanks for listening. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications and IOE Research Development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero-Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagan is the executive producer of the IOE podcast. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 